Harvard Divinity School. Transcendence and Transformation Initiative Annual Presentation, September 21st, 2023. Okay, well, good evening. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. I know you all well, so I don't really need to introduce myself. I assume you know each other, uh, or you soon will. So given that we don't have a huge amount of time, I don't want to go around and do introductions, because if you haven't met each other, you soon will in subsequent meetings, or you can take a moment after this and introduce yourself to anyone you don't know. So as you probably all know, this is the third year of the Center's Transcendence and Transformation Initiative. Each year we've had the great privilege of offering fresh um, programming for the Center and for the Divinity School, and also hosting researchers from around the world, uh, including the five whom from whom you'll soon hear much more. Um, in the past two years, we've held this event online, which has had the benefit of drawing a large crowd from our newsletter constituency, which is now over 7,000. But this year, we've decided to hold it in person and to keep it rather small, as you can see. It includes the invitation went out to just center residents and to the center research affiliates, that is to say, postdoctoral fellows, visiting scholars and research associates. So thank you all for coming. Um, we're doing this event in person in hopes of building community, uh, broadcasting the work that our TNT researchers are doing, although broadcasting it to um, our most intimate and informed constituents, namely you. And of course, we're also hosting it this way in order to encourage um, constructive feedback and collaboration. So I will soon be ceding this podium to the first of our four, uh, five TNT researchers, that is um, Russ, but, and each of our five will present for about 10 minutes. And I'll return to the podium to introduce each of them in turn. And after all five of them, which will be after Nick's presentation, I suggest we open it up for questions and comments. I fear that if we try to do questions and comments, in between all five we'll be running up against time and I don't like playing time referee all that much so I just want to do it once okay so at the end and it may also be that those questions and comments lead to a natural conversation among us rather than um, uh, just single questions and answers okay so without further ado let me introduce um, Russell Powell who is the first of our three postdoctoral fellows in the philosophy of religion. Russell's research focuses on the religious, ethical, and political resonances of contemporary environmental issues, particularly the religious dimension, the religious dimension of American environmental thought. Prior to joining the CSWR, Russell taught at Boston College as a core fellow and visiting assistant professor of environmental theology and ethics. He earned his doctorate in the Multidisciplinary Religion and Society program at Princeton Theological Seminary in 2019. He's held teaching positions at College of the Holy Cross, Amherst College, and Princeton University. He's currently completing a book manuscript focused on John Muir, the famed 19th century conservationist and founder of the Sierra Club and Muir's influence, for good and ill, on conceptions of the sacred in modern American environmentalist thought. Russell's research also examines the intersection of race, religion, and the environment. And 
Rebecca Neal Gould, who is pre presented in this, not in this room, in our other room. Um, uh, Russell was an editor with uh, Rebecca of a two-volume special issue in the Journal for the Study of Religion, Nature, and Culture that reappraised various cornerstone American environmental thinkers in light of contemporary justice concerns over race, gender, and class. So please join me in welcoming Russell. Thank you. All right, so uh, thank you, Charlie, for that introduction. Uh, my name is Russ Powell. Good evening. Um, the research project I've undertaken during my research fellowship year at the CSWR seeks to explore the question, what is the proper role of transcendent experiences in society's transformation? The Transcendence and Transformation Research Initiative is obviously well suited to house such a project as might be animated by this line of inquiry. It's a truism of American life that religious experiences play an outsized role in the body politic and the changes it undergoes. This goes as much for historical represent representatives of this idea, like the civil rights movement, as it does for a political movement like American environmentalism, which some historians continue to insist is a province of secular thought. Religious experience plays a key role in defining this movement's values, in designating its interests, and in determining its pursuits, whether it be experiences of direct interspecies encounter. I'm thinking of Terry Tempest Williams' writing about pronghorn sheep, say, or Drew Lanham's descriptions of birding in the Appalachian Mountains. Whether it's uh, experiences of feeling at one with the landscape, Edward Abbey and Mary Austin's experiences in the American West spring to mind, or otherwise whether it's experiences of incomparable power through political activism, like Julia Butterfly Hill living for over two years in the boughs of a thousand-year-old redwood tree to prevent its being felled by the Pacific Lumber Company. The, his the history of American environmental politics is grounded in a history of transcendent experience. Yet the quality of that transformation is sometimes obstructed by questions surrounding the intelligibility of religious experience. The trouble is as common in the history of the study of religion as it is in the history of environmentalism. That trouble, specifically, is in the way individuals claim, or more commonly, presume their transcendent experiences are ineffable, so thus are immune to discursive scrutiny. In American environmentalism, this is in large part due to the heritage of Romanticism, and particularly the conceptual valence of the sublime. Now when I say the sublime, I mean that which is available through experiences of, say, rugged, unyielding landscapes, or charismatic, fear-inducing megafauna. To be swept up in sublime experiences of this sort is to be carried beyond recognition and description, to be carried beyond words even, beyond linguistic intelligibility. While I'm interested in holding space for the sublime, so in respecting what is unspeakable, I'm often reminded of Wittgenstein saying, of what we cannot speak we must pass over in silence. 
I'm nevertheless interested in exploring transcendent experiences for their explanatory value. It's my sense that when it comes to the social transformations that transcendent experiences affect, we're better off making inquiries into transcendence than we are leaving it alone as something that's more or less unexplainable or moreover that resists explanation, escapes from the pressure of the logical finger, as William James put it. Traditionally speaking, the habit among political theorists has been to assume that the general unintelligibility of transcendent experience is tolerable, even acceptable. I mean this in the way that religion is often treated as an inherently private affair, so should in any case be withheld from the sphere of public reasoning, thinking of John Rawls's suggestion that we all stand behind a sort of metaphorical veil of ignorance that curtains off our private lives from the public, or Richard Rorty's contention uh, that religion is a conversation stopper, so should be proscribed from the public square altogether. Yet when transcendent experiences play such a significant role in shaping the politics of a popular movement like environmentalism, a movement that has in turn shaped so much of the aesthetic and ethical values of American discourse, to simply maintain the private public Jeffersonian compromise is to leave our understanding of religion's role in society in society's transformation hopelessly incomplete. So the concern with the general unintelligibility of experiences of transcendence that I wish to lift up in my work has to do with these experiences bestowing private epistemic authority on an individual. The concern more specifically is with non-discursive access to truth. Someone who undergoes an experience of transcendence, maybe uh, some experience of the sublime, might claim to possess unique insights into the way things really are or say, the underlying reality of nature or even the mind of God. Yet when such experience, excuse me, when such individuals are asked to justify their claims to know these things, they will often abandon practices of reason giving that justify other more quotidian forms of knowledge and instead will claim that the insights bestowed on them in their transcendent experience are somehow beyond normal practices of reason giving and exchange. Such experiences are thought to defy the normal processes we undergo to hold our knowledge claims accountable. Transcendent insights could be said to outstrip our linguistic capacities. They are ineffable and therefore secure from requests to be justified. The problem, though, is with the ways we can delude ourselves into thinking any claim to knowledge, any insight, is above the requirements of reasonable justifiability. What's to say that the knowledge transcendent experience confers on someone is not also inflected with someone's unexamined, or worse, examined but unjustified, biases? Take the case of John Muir in the environmental movement he helped inspire. Muir was convinced that American wildlands like his beloved Yosemite Valley were sacred, and he was convinced of this by the strength of his transcendent experiences in these places. Fine, this is not something I wish to dispute. Yet Muir also made claims about the cultural inferiority of indigenous peoples on the same basis. That is, by making recourse to a kind of pre-linguistic, intuitive sense that, say, the mono-Indians of the Yosemite Valley were not, in, not fit to inhabit such a sublime landscape. 
Muir's transcendent experiences may have been ineffable in the way they were difficult to express verbally, but they also became vehicles for communicating his cultural biases. Transcendent experiences have real implications in society's transformation. The American environmental movement is a case in point, as I've said. Yet if we don't interrogate transcendent experiences so to hold them accountable to the demands of discursive scrutiny, we run the risk of allowing claims of ineffability to work as a kind of defense strategy against our prospects of examining whether transcendent experiences positively impact our pursuit of justice. This is part of what I mean when I say transcendent experiences have explanatory value. American environmentalism's historical failure to address concerns about environmental justice can in part be explained, I think, through the ways transcendent experiences like mirrors contribute to the movement's larger political interests. So I'll wrap up by saying, over the course of this year, I will be developing a constructive account that will seek to demonstrate how the private contents revealed through transcendent experience cannot be separated from the public search for justification. Extending the work and methods of scholars like Wayne Proudfoot and Scott Davis, I aim to explore the ways ineffability is not simply an unanalyzable characteristic of transcendent experience, but an artifact of the peculiar grammatical rules that govern the use of concepts in particular historical uh, contexts, especially those contexts where environmentalism's future horizons are being imagined and reimagined. I want to show specifically that the insights gained from transcendent experience that play important parts in society's transformation can be understood as representing the habits of practical reasoning grounded in discursive practice. To do this, I'll rely on the work of philosophers like Richard Rorty, Robert Brandom, and Nancy Fraser. The research I'm pursuing this year will seek to illustrate how transcendent experiences, far from being immune to scrutiny, can be located within the nexus of beliefs, commitments, and cultural historical circumstances that give rise to transcendent experiences in the first place. My goal is to put forward a practical method for testing the truth claims of transcendent experience and thus a means through which we might reasonably hold the insights engendered by transcendent experiences accountable in the public sphere. Thanks. Thank you, Russ. Um, it's a great pleasure for me to introduce our next speaker, Tara Smith, who is the Center's postdoctoral fellow in spirituality and the arts. This is an appointment made in collaboration with three partner institutions, the Warburg Institute in London, the Center for Hermetic Philosophy and Related Currents at the University of Amsterdam, and the Giorgio Cini Foundation's Center for Comparative Studies of Civilizations and Spiritualities in Venice. And in fact, Tara will be spending time in, um, is it Amsterdam and Venice, right? in the spring semester. <laughs> Tara's research focuses on speculative fiction, new religious movements, popular culture, and ecology. She received her PhD in 2022 from the University of Sydney in Australia with a thesis entitled The Social Praxis of Science Fiction, Pedagogies of Social Change. Her thesis explored the power of speculative fiction to promote positive social change in society 
and incorporated social scientific methodologies and close readings of texts. She's currently working on publishing a manuscript based on that thesis, now entitled New Religious Movements as Expressed in Science Fiction. She's also the co-PI of a project that explores the effect of spirituality and religious belief on the mental health of astronauts. Uh, education is an important uh, element in Tara's research career. In 2022, she completed her graduate certificate in higher education, and she's taught extensively in a range of units, including media studies, new religious movements, utopic fiction, writing, and economics. So please join me in welcoming Tara. Hello, everybody, and uh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, so my research project uh, that I will be introducing is on Warhammer and religion. I, I do want to say that all the models that you're going to see in this presentation are not mine, but uh, painted by my uh, fiancé, Luke Keneally. Uh, and a kind of funny aside, when Luke and I first started dating, he always wanted to talk about 40k law, and I'd always sort of roll my eyes. And now that I'm incorporating into my academic life, it's, um, uh, he's very excited to see that it's back on the table <laughs> as a discussion point. Uh, so sort of why Warhammer and religion? And that's a good question. I think that to sort of understand that, I want to first sort of contextualize this work with my other areas of research. And this has already sort of been introduced, but I'll say anyway. So my honors thesis uh, was on Zen Buddhism and ecology in Frank Herbert's June series. And then my PhD sort of more uh, generally, as said, looked at positive social change. And then as you can see, I'm also working uh, with David Kim, as you can see down the bottom there on, I don't know where I put that, oh, at the top on uh, space mental health and the role of religion. But in addition, I think understanding religion within gaming is vital to how we understand modern manifestations of religion. And as uh, Lars DeWilt said in his more recent book, young people in the 21st century in the United States are probably more likely to encounter religion in uh, gaming than they would in church or anywhere else. So if that's the case, then I believe it's a very uh, worthy area of study. But we're going to focus right here as this is where we are now. But before I start, uh, if there's anyone in the room uh, that are feeling what on earth is Warhammer 40k, that's totally okay. You probably just were in different circles at school than I was, <laughs> which is totally fine. Um, I'm going to give a little bit of introduction. So Warhammer 40,000 or 40k is a miniature war game produced by Games Workshop. It first appeared in 1987 and has now entered its 10th edition as of March this year. According to Hobby Magazine ICV2, Warhammer 40k is the highest selling miniature war game uh, in the world. And while it's difficult to estimate the number of players, the Warhammer website Goonhammer estimates they have about 2.4 million players globally, with less than a percent of those being uh, competitive players. So while large proportions of these players interact with Warhammer by engaging with the miniatures directly, either by buying, painting, playing battles or all of the above. Many also engage with the law from both Games Workshop publishing division Black Library and uh, fan material, and by playing Warhammer video games and by communicating on subreddits and other forums. So Warhammer 40K is set 40,000 into the future of humanity, and like most science fiction settings, is replete with aliens, mutated humanoids, androids, faster than light space travel, technologically advanced weapons, and similar concepts. The Warhammer universe is comprised of complex and detailed mythologies, multiple religions, and numerous gods that inhabit uh, the universe that people interact with and believe in. 
Four of the most prominent of these gods are the Chaos Gods, which consist of Khorne, the Blood God, Nurgle, the Plague Lord, Slaanesh, the Dark Prince, and Zinch, the Changer of Ways. And these gods, according to the lore, are the dark reflections of mortal emotions. These gods exist within an alternate dimension uh, known as the Warp, from which they engage, interfere, corrupt, and meddle in mortal affairs. So this project is interested in how players engage with the religious elements present within their game environment. So player engagements are not siloed into a single interaction with the universe, but rather 40k supports multiple ways of experiencing the game and playing. For example, someone might buy a model which is devoted to the chaos of god Khorne, paint them, play them in a battle, read about the characters arc and lore in 40k literature, and then discuss them with people online forum or in person tournaments. So religion is being played, engaged, and interacted with, and in addition, the player's own belief systems could be challenged by the clear satanic, catholic, occultic, or atheistic overtones within the law. So the field of religion gaming has to late date largely focused on video gaming, despite the growing popularity and complexity of miniature and tabletop gaming. In addition, a lot of the work that's out there focuses on the religious manifestation or development in a single game, whereas the depth of the game environment is often much more diverse than that. So this study aims to explore a more realistic picture of players and how they engage with Warhammer 40k in the context of religion. So to explore these manifestations of religion, I have four main questions, which will be three to four different papers. The first is, do players and painters experience a meditative flow state during the painting of miniatures? Two, how do pe uh, people use Warhammer symbols and images in alt-right conspiracy spaces? Three, what are the religious themes within the games themselves and the lore and how do players engage with them? And four, how do we create a methodology that captures the complex engagement with religion across various mediums? But I'm going to talk mostly about the flow state paper as that is the one I'm working <coughs> on most at the moment. So I'm going to give a bit more of an introduction of that. Uh, so as I've already mentioned, while gameplay is a large part of engaging with Warhammer and religion, players often spend hours painting the models in deep concentration. And this experience itself shares, I believe, many similarities with academic work on meditative practices and flow states that represent additional dimensions of religious and spiritual player experience. Flow can be defined as a state of pleasure uh, had when engaging in a task with great focus. Flow state can be found in religious practices. Mahali Csikszentmihalyi, from his studies on flow, stated that this particular state of mind involves both immersion, but also importantly, a sense of uh, not feeling your own body. Experience is not unfamiliar to religious practitioners doing meditation, out-of-body experiences, and repeated rituals. So whilst this has been applied to video game theories, little work has been done on the flow state during activities like painting miniatures. And the painting of miniatures is very detailed and intricate. On average, the models are one inch tall and take about two to three hours to paint, although this can vary considerably. My partner's a very slow painter, so many, many, many hours. And it's also important to note that a key factor of flow is that the task doesn't have to be for a set purpose and many people in the community only paint, they don't actually play with the models at all. So I think it kind of fits in well with that. So I'm interested in what painters think while painting, whether they feel relaxed or zen while doing so, how they feel before and after. So the study is going to recruit 16 participants on Reddit forums uh, like Warhammer, forums are Warhammer, Warhammer Facebook and Discord pages, asking for participants that paint at least two hours a week. Um, so once chosen, I'm going to have uh, 25 to 30 minute long interviews and involve questions centered around Csikszentmihalyi's flow state factors. And they're also going to be keeping a reflective journal uh, before those sessions where they're going to write about how they feel when they paint. Uh, so now that we know the details of the first study, I'm just going to briefly introduce the other 
uh, two papers. So um, this is the paper two, which is going to look at the God Emperor and sort of the alt right and QAnon adaptations of 40k imagery. Uh, so if you look at the picture on the right, this is a typical picture of the emperor in 40k that people um, that are very pro-Trump put Trump's face on. And I think the first part you can kind of understand what, what's being said there. And then uh, his, uh, this is very common in these sorts of spaces. So I'm interested in, I guess, like why people have done this. Um, you know, in what settings do they share this? And I guess the kind of political use of, of Warhammer images and iconography, both within the community and out. And then I'm also interested in how 40K helps people understand religion. And this is a picture on the left. Uh, you have the emperor, you know, being like, who are you? And talking to Jesus and Jesus is like, I am what you have failed to achieve. So in the 40K law, the emperor tries to unite people and it doesn't really work. Um, and so this was found in our Christian dank memes. So it's sort of, interested in how they kind of um, understand uh, religion through Warhammer. And this is a post from uh, Dan Christian memes where people are discussing whether is the emperor God and Horus is Jesus, or, like within the law. And then I like this uh, kind of um, quote where they find 40K helpful to their faith. So I'm also interested in how this sort of informs it using sort of studies like papers like this. So that final paper is looking at religion and methodology. Um, so I'm sort of interested in how, not only how the law and symbols are used, but also how do we as academics try and write about these very large and complex worldviews and game environments that do justice to the context without being descriptive. So because there's so many different ways that a player is typically engaging with religion, how do we kind of understand that? And this was inspired by this paper here by Alex McCauley, who wrote a paper on the Emperor in 40K and how it's similar, similar to Augustus and the Aeneid. And I found this paper really interesting because it seemed to want to silo the gameplay from the law, or the law, sorry, from the gameplay, which to me is akin to sort of trying to remove Lord of the Ring fanfic from actual Lord of Rings or from the Dune film unrelated to the Dune book. You just can't really take them apart. And so this is where Kirsten uh, Reddit-Antweiler's uh, academic in Germany idea of the game environment is so important because I think it contextualizes play. Uh, so a person, um, as I said, can engages in many different ways. And so I'm sort of thinking of writing a methodology paper that utilizes this as a sort of spring point to try and work out how we understand and use a methodology that, that does justice to that. Um, so that's me with 20 seconds on the timer. And um, <laughs> that's my final thing. Thank you. Thank you, Todd. All right, next up is Fabian Mueller, our second postdoctoral fellow in philosophy of religion. Fabian is a philosopher who explores intercultural approaches to metaphysics. His research engages with Neoplatonic, patristic, and medieval scholastic traditions, Eastern Christianity, and Indian Buddhism. He received his MA with a thesis on Pseudo-Dionysius in the Europhilosophy program at the Catholic University of Louvain, and his PhD from Heidelberg University, where he wrote a thesis on the prologue to the Gospel of John through the lens of Madhyamaka, Yogacara, and Neoplatonic philosophy. From 2014 to 2018, he lived as a Benedictine monk in the Abbey of Samaris of Clairvaux. And monastic life under the rule of St. Benedict shaped Fabian's interest in community life and contemplation. During his time here at the CSWR, Fabian will work on a project involving Vasubandhu's Yogacara system 
and Evagrius Ponticus. So please join me in welcoming Fabian. So I don't actually have a text for this slide because it's just the title of my project. But I'm going to tell you that uh, it's Saint Anthony and the link with uh, Evagrius is that, uh, well, Saint Anthony was the first Christian monk and Evagrius belongs to the generation after uh, Saint Anthony. And this is a picture by uh, Hieronymus Bosch, whom you may know as a very mm. esoteric uh, painter, Renaissance painter. So, uh, in his introduction to a book on Buddhist philosophy, Norman Fisher says that we are now at the time of third wave Buddhism. The first wave is the original spread of Buddhism in South and Southeast Asia. The second wave is the first encounter with the colonial West and Oriental scholarship in the 19th century. And the third wave is that of secular Buddhism, where Buddhism has lost in the West its religious garment and presents itself as a spiritual practice leading to things such as uh, well-being and self-discovery. In his monograph, A Critique of Western Buddhism, Glenn Wallace calls this phenomenon Buddhist modernism. He describes how in the process of Fisher's third wave, Western Buddhism has turned into the expression of the so-called self-help industry and into an ideology that enables the subjects of capitalism to find comfort in their state of alienation. Concepts such as corporate mindfulness and secular Buddhism epitomize this development. My project at the center attempts to translate Wallace's criticism into a concrete philosophical case study. My starting point is the Buddhist philosopher Vasubandhu. Vasubandhu represents the so-called Yogacara school of Indian Mahayana Buddhism, one of the two dominant schools of Indian Buddhism. Vasubandhu says, uh, in a nutshell, that material reality does not exist, that all things are only a manifestation of thought or, or spirit, and that one must strive to attain, through a form of intellectual exercise, the superior realm of intellectuality. And this realm is identical to the so-called Dharmakaya of the Buddha, which is uh, the ultimate form of reality. In the course of the 20th century, Vasubandhu has attracted much philosophical attention. However, this attention has mostly come from North American scholars and has led to Vasubandhu being more and more associated with epistemology, cognitive science, and phenomenology. Among philosophers, Vasubandhu is read today as a 21st century philosopher of experience, who teaches us to be careful about the assumptions that we make on the relation between our knowledge and the world. And in that respect, he appears on par with people like Kant, Husserl, or Merleau-Ponty. My project raises the question, how does this approach fit together with the critical function of religious scholarship? Or to put it differently, is it responsible to approach a 5th century Buddhist teacher who practiced a form of ascetical monasticism, established a system of radical disengagement from the world, distrusted ordinary perception, and saw the goal of existence in the unification with the Buddha's Dharmakaya as a secular philosophy, a philosopher who can be harmonized with materialist assumptions? 
To answer this question, I propose to invert its premise and approach Vasubandhu through a comparative study that engages not with epistemology or cognitive science, but with the teaching of another late antique monk, ascetic writer and metaphysician, the Greek philosopher Evagrius Ponticus. Evagrius' teaching presents not only accidental parallelisms with Vasubandhu, but the parallelisms reach so far that Hans Urs von Balthasar, whom you may know as one of the most important modern theologians, called Evagrius a crypto-Buddhist. Situating him closer to Indian Mahayana than to his fellow monks in the Palestinian desert, whom you can see on this picture by Fra Angelico. The comparison is made even more interesting, interesting by the fact that in recent years, von Balthasar's positive judgment on, Eva, on Evagrius has been contested by a new type of conservative scholarship that situates Evagrius in a more narrow Trinitarian theological environment. This more conservative reading has been initiated by German Orthodox hermit Gabriel Bunge, who was at the beginning of his monastic career also a Benedictine monk and then changed, uh, uh, changed sides. <laughs> Quite recently, patristic scholar Bruria Bitton Ashkeloni reaffirmed that Evagrius is not in any way close to Buddhism and that von Balthasar's view has been overcome. While it is not my aim to make as many enemies as possible among Buddhist and patristic scholars, my project will contribute to reveal something about these two philosophers that is not culturally determinate and that by consequence cannot be claimed as the specificity of one or the other culture. My methodology for this project is essentially philological and historical. In fact, Scholars in the intercultural field, as well as in, as in Buddhology and religious studies, often deplore that comparative studies uh, are disconnected from the standards of the fields with which they engage. It is common that, for example, studies on a Buddhist, um, studies on a Buddhist philosopher are carried out by a Western scholar who does, who does not have knowledge in Sanskrit philology. And this can only be avoided if researchers invest the same efforts into the respective methodologies. The texts that I will look at are firstly Evagrius's main work, the so-called Kephalaya Gnostica. This is a controversial text that is extant only in two Syriac translations, one of which strongly attenuates Evagrius's ideas. His teaching was in fact under attack from various sides because of its incompatibilities with the development of official Trinitarian and Christological dogma. Evagrius relied heavily on originistic and Neoplatonic metaphysics, which made his texts suspicious to theologians from the late 5th century onward. And this is actually not only a problem of the past, uh, but the question of orthodoxy still plays a major part uh, role in scholarship, um, as Augustine Cassidy observed in a 2012 paper. For my project, I will draw on the second Syriac translation, which is uh, considered as the less amended version. Some Greek fragments of the original text have been found, and these fragments are very close to the second translation, which corroborates the idea that this is, in fact, the more authentic translation. On the Buddhist side, I work with a text called Madhyanta Vibhaga Bhashya. This is a commentary that Vasubandhu wrote on an earlier text, and this earlier text is attributed to a legendary Buddhist teacher called um, either Maitreya or Maitreya Nata, of which we know so little that even his historical uh, existence is 
disputed. So the legend says that he did not write anything himself, but dictated text to the monk Asanga, uh, who then took note of them. Vasubandhu's commentary reads as something like an introduction to spiritual practice. It explains the errors implied in our everyday attitude toward reality, the way to eliminate these errors and the nature of ultimate uh, reality that we can discover once we have overcome our uh, errors. And these two texts, Evagrius and Vasubandhu's, have their roots in two culturally and religiously distinct contexts but they converge in defining the aim of human life in religious terms, in attributing the human being the capacity to attain ultimate reality, and in being rather critical of our ordinary way of dealing with reality. They both consider the ascetic and monastic lifestyle as the only uh, possible access to ultimate reality. What I hope to achieve by making these two traditions communicate is to reveal the possible benefit of bringing back our rather diluted vision of religious and philosophical traditions to their more radical forms. To use the terms that define this center's program, what I argue for is that if we want to transform ourselves so as to reach transcendence, we should be ready to accept that some traditions require us to put our ordinary mode of existence at stake and engage with ideas that may contradict our quest for subjective well-being and spiritual self-help. This might force us to abandon spirituality that makes us, quote, fully participate in capitalist dynamics while retaining the appearance of mental sanity, unquote, as Slavoj Žižek writes about Western Buddhism. But I dare to say that to scholars in religious studies, that might be a necessary risk to assume. Thank you very much. It is my pleasure to introduce um, Adam Bremer McCollum next. He is our research associate in Eastern Christian texts and translation, so it's appropriate that he follows on Fabian's presentation on Evagrius. Um, Adam completed his PhD in 2009 at Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion in Cincinnati, Ohio, where he studied Semitic languages and Greek and Latin. His academic research experience includes five years as a cataloger of Syriac and Arabic manuscripts at the Hill Museum and Manuscript Library, uh, which is part of St. John's University in Minnesota, and time on a research project at the University of Vienna on Syriac, Greek, Arabic, Armenian, and Georgian logical and philosophical texts <laughs> in the ninth century. <laughs> um, that's Georgia. Uh, <laughs> the, the country. Uh, the state does not yet have its own script. <laughs> For four years, um, Adam taught languages and texts of late antiquity at the University of Notre Dame. Most recently, he taught various Aramaic languages, Gez and Greek, for students at Stanford University, and has translated various Syriac texts. Um, his research focuses on grammar, lexicography, and ed editing and translating texts in regional and trans-regional languages <coughs> of antiquity from the Caucasus and the Eastern Mediterranean to the Horn of Africa, the Middle East, and Central Asia. 
He has over two decades of experience studying, teaching, translating, and editing texts in Syriac and other Aramaic languages, Arabic, Hebrew, Ge'ez, Coptic, Old Georgian, Old Armenian, and Old Turkic, or Uyghur or Uyghur, depending on your pronunciation scheme for that language. Um, I've been schooled on my pronunciation <laughs> of that in the past. Okay, Adam and I are actually doing something together. Um, we're launching a, t uh, a text and translation series as part of this TNT initiative, featuring texts from the ancient and medieval Mediterranean, Near East, and Central Asia, focusing on mythology, metaphysics, and mysticism, extraordinary experiences, and the spiritual exercises that lead to them. But I'll let Adam tell you more about that. Adam. Thank you for that long introduction. <laughs> All right, let's see. Okay, here we are. That's a picture, a recent picture, uh, from the Pinhoti Trail uh, in Elijay, Georgia. Uh, just because I think it's cool and there's orange fungus, so who doesn't love that? So, that's the state um, in Georgia. Yes, this is the state of Georgia. <laughs> Um, this trail, by the way, is uh, 335 miles, which I only went a, a few uh, a few miles in. But all right. So, uh, as Charlie mentioned, uh, my my project and my work for this uh, coming year is going to be is working on editing and translating, uh, and eventually producing some books uh, in some texts that hopefully will interest all of us who have uh, interest in whatever kind in the TNT topics. So first of all, um, what we're going to, in terms of place, what are we talking about? As Charlie mentioned, uh, Eastern Mediterranean, also the Caucasus, so we're talking about a different Georgia this time, uh, and Armenia, of course, uh, and Central Asia. Um, Central Asia may be a little bit less obvious uh, matching in here, but I'm especially looking at uh, Christian and Manichaean texts and Old Uyghur and possibly some also in the uh, in some of the, the Iranian languages. Um, why link all of these together? Um, well, for one thing, they have, a lot of them have very much shared characteristics in terms of manuscript culture, uh, in terms, and it, if, we, if those are the only things we study that you kind of forget how not everyone does things this way. Um, but that links them together in, in one way. Uh, we have uh, also just the, the text genres that we're talking about. We get commentary. We get texts, and we get text plus commentary, and sometimes commentaries on commentaries, of course. You get hagiographies. You have prayers or liturgies written down in certain ways. Um, all of these, fortunately, uh, have some fun TNT uh, touch points for us. Um, and then finally, some of the actual text corpora are the same across these regions and languages. And that's, of course, thanks to translation, which can be, uh, I think, firmly put into this uh, broader uh, uh, transcendence topic. Um, and I won't list all those languages, but you can read them all there. And uh, this is not an exhaustive, and uh, this is just a starting point. And, of course, uh, there will eventually be some other people uh, Working and some working on these texts, and they may uh, they may uh, that list may grow. Uh, over on the right, you'll see uh, some more Evagrius and more Syriac. So this is one of the texts I'll mention uh, just a bit later. But the Great Letter, and this is a text that uh, Charlie and I have been working on off and on for a little while. 
Um, it exists in uh, just one translation, but three, three manuscripts. Uh, two of them happen to be at the British Library, one's in Mardin. Um, and there you can see how pretty and fun Syriac is to look at all day. Uh, all right, next. Um, so, a few series hallmarks. So first of all, what are, what are we looking at when we talk about this series? What are we hoping for? So first off, source text editions, or original language if you want to call it that, but source text editions for students and scholars. Um, I'm especially interested in making texts that are going to be helpful and useful to students of these languages. Obviously it's not a big group, but there are some uh, scattered all over the place. And having texts that are helpful to students is one thing that can make these uh, text and language is better known. Um, it's going to be text plus translation parallel. Some of you will know the Loeb Classical Library or the Clay Sanskrit Library uh, where you have, and there's older ones of course as well uh, in <coughs> other language traditions, uh, where you have a text on the left and translation into some language on the right. Uh, very handy, we've all used them as students and probably criticized the translation on the right and I'm sure that will happen in this case too. But at least what goes on there is you have the translation and, you know, I mean, the, the translator at least is pretty bold in giving, giving it to you with the text uh, there. So hopefully that'll be a fun, uh, a fun kind of comparison for, for various kinds of readers. Um, text annotations. Uh, this can have to do with the things we all tend to find in, uh, in philological text editions. So, uh, it can have to do with content, with the language, with translation decisions that the translator has made, um, etc., etc. Um, there will definitely be at least some uh, introductory essays, of course, uh, but there's not really a limit on them. I mean, certain authors, of course, require more introducing than others, um, but all from the viewpoint of the uh, of the T and T topics uh, that we're all here for. Um, Another thing that I think is a, hopefully a little bit unique and useful uh, in this series are the source, whatever the source text uh, happens to be in, there's going to be a glossary for all of those texts. Uh, and again, these aren't, it's not adding a whole lot of pages, but it can really, really be useful to students. Um, just to, you know, you don't have to, you know, slog through uh, 1,600 pages of LSJ just to find the, the one Greek word you're hunting for. Um, and then we're hoping to uh, have some really beautiful typography, both in terms of the scripts, all of the various scripts we're talking about, and of course the, the Latin scripts, excuse me, Latin script stuff for English, uh, etc. Um, now finally, the, the real product of all of this will be open access editions uh, that you know anyone can just look at, and it, these will be PDFs of some kind which will match physical editions which people can buy not for free, of course, but uh, um, but same uh, same text, same layout, and everything for for both of them. Now, text topics. What are we talking about? Um, if you jump down to the middle point there, and uh, in terms of genre, homilies, hagiographies, prayer and liturgy, okay, uh, incantations, myth, uh, recounting the myth, spiritual manuals, uh, like Charlie mentioned. Um, there's a great uh, a great one which does not exist in English yet by uh, 6th century, uh, big fan of Evagrius by the way, uh, author called uh, Sergius of Vraishina, which is kind of down the line if, uh, you know, if this keeps uh, gaining momentum we're going to uh, look into this text. 
um, correspondence, as in the great letter, whether this is formal or informal, whatever. Um, and then even medicine uh, comes up. So uh, we're talking about visions, dreams, music, uh, magic, uh, writ large, miracles, myth, humor, uh, even there's, there's a little bit of this in Syria. Uh, and some of it, uh, believe it or not, is uh, pretty, uh, pretty mind-bending. So. Um, 13th century, by the way. Um, encounters with non-human entities. And then finally, uh, people who are just into the transformative power of languages and texts. Okay. Um, now, very quickly, I just want to mention the uh, four texts which are kind of right here on the, uh, on the forefront for us. First of all, the so-called Hymn of the Pearl. Um, this is a text that exists in Syriac, and it, it was translated also into Greek and exists in a, another Greek paraphrase. This will be a, an edition and translation of all of these together. Uh, Evagrius's great letter we've talked about. Uh, this will include uh, Syriac, which was, was in Greek, but we don't have any half of the Greek. We only have the Syriac. So this is a Syriac translation with a, transla um, a Syriac translation with a translation of the Syriac. Excuse me. And then next uh, in Coptic, uh, in Lycopolitan Coptic, if you know anything about Coptic dialects, um, the Manichaean homilies and the Manichaean uh, psalm book. Um, one of these, the psalm book was translated in the 1930s and it looks like it was translated in the 1830s. Um, and the other one does not exist in English, only in a German translation. Um, these are, I mean, they, they, they're both a bit scattered in terms of what they discuss, but there are all sorts of, you know, meetings with angels. We'll see one nice one in just a few minutes. Um, and, uh, you know, gaze, moving into other realms beyond this one, etc. And then very lastly, prose and verse in Arabic on cannabis from the 13th to the 15th centuries. Okay. The Hymn of the Pearl, this is just the, uh, this exists in a single manuscript in Syriac. Uh, you can see this is the very beginning of it here, those red letters. It says Madrasha, that first part. Madrasha means hymn and a bunch of other things. I don't know that it really does mean hymn here, but that's what it's called. Um, and as you see, that's an, yet another British Library manuscript. I will read it to you. This is a few lines from the Hymn of the Pearl. Happy to discuss this text ad nauseum with anyone who will listen later. But, uh, the author, the narrator says, I went down into Egypt and my attendants left me. I headed for the snake and I stayed around his lair, waiting until he dozed and slept and I could take my pearl from him. Now you've got a person meeting a snake hunting a pearl in Egypt. So... Great, great starting points for, fan, for a fantastic narrative. Uh, now, the Coptic worked, at least, so that's good. Um, and then, so this is uh, from the Manichaean homilies. Just a nice uh, example here. This is Mani's, Mani describing his mission, making it very clear he didn't learn this from just, uh, from just anyone, but he got it from God through his angel. Uh, it says there, or through his messenger, if you want, that he got them. This is... Probably not a text we will do, but this is the Isagoge, just to give you a sense. Obviously, you know what this looks like, but um, but just to see how easy and how you know cool it can be. You know, even if you're just focusing on one, that's great. Um, but but it's it can be handy to have both beside each other. And lastly, this is just a glossary example. 
Um, this happens to be for uh, some of the uh, cannabis prose texts. Uh, you'll see this, the glossary happens to be all in transliteration, not in Arabic script. But in any case, that's that. And again, my, the, the goal for all of these is to be super, super useful uh, to both students uh, of the languages and people who may not know anything about or care anything about the languages, but really want to uh, jump into these texts for their own reasons. Thanks. I didn't know that cannabis was cognate in Arabic. There's kanab uh, right there. Look at that. Learn something new. All right. Thank you, Adam. Um, finally, we have. Uh, it's my, I'm very pleased to introduce Nicholas Lowe, who's our third and final postdoctoral fellow in the philosophy of religion. Nick received an MTS in the philosophy of religion from HDS here, and will receive his PhD from Harvard in November. It's all in, so congratulations, Nick. He's now clear of that. Um, Nick's research focuses on points of contact between theology, religion, and modern philosophy, tracking especially the shadowy afterlives of gods, divinities, and other religious phenomena in continental philosophy. His dissertation offers an interpretation of the philosophy of Friedrich Nietzsche as describing and pursuing a discipleship to the god Dionysus, <coughs> which entails Nietzsche becoming the philosophical mouthpiece that gives voice to the abysmal divinity of that very god. Nick's research project at the CSWR investigates Nietzsche's madness as an element in his relationship to Dionysus and the question of what possibilities Dionysian deification holds after Nietzsche. Nick, please. Okay, thank you, Charlie, and thanks to everyone else for sticking around. Uh, I have, again, the distinction of going last. Hopefully I can uh, make something of that privilege. Um, yeah, so, so the, the research project that I'm working on this year um, is titled Nietzsche's Dionysian Philosophy, Laughter, Madness, and Divine Play. Uh, there are two dimensions to this project as I envision it now. Um, the first is building on research that I've been doing for a couple of years already, and will continue to do well into the future, I hope, and that is the project of recovering Nietzsche's Dionysianism. Uh, this means identifying Nietzsche as a Dionysian philosopher, continuing to describe his, his um, philosophy as a pursuit of deification and describing a discipleship to Dionysus. What is new this year uh, at the CSWR, what I hope to focus on, are these categories of laughter, madness, and play, which could be grouped under the category of the ludic, perhaps. So Tara, let's talk about play and games. Um, these, uh, there's sort of two surfaces even to these concepts, laughter, madness, and play. Um, they're privileged concepts for Nietzsche. Uh, he talks about them a great deal in his writing. Uh, they're important elements of his Dionysianism. Um, but he also practices them. Uh, his style of philosophizing is defined by playfulness. Uh, he makes his readers laugh if they're reading him properly, according to me. And of course, he famously went mad. Um, so both of those surfaces will be part of this project. The second uh, dimension 
is asking after the present and future of Dionysian philosophy after Nietzsche. So Nietzsche's philosophy is a call for us to sort of follow this Dionysian itinerary. So my question is, have people done that? If so, where are they, who are they, and can I be one of them? Uh, so I'm going to start by talking about that first dimension and a little background. Um, so like so many modern philosophers, Nietzsche responds, um, or Nietzsche understands himself as responding to a crisis. He names that crisis as nihilism and the death of God. For Nietzsche, um, this is an ontological crisis. Uh, it is a, a, a sort of fundamental collapse of many of the suppositions that ground Western viewpoints and Western culture. Um, these include concepts like truth and knowledge, but also experiences of sensation, perception, and embodiment. Um, so the death of God is, is a crisis that affects even our, our sort of most fundamental experiences of ourselves and of being. Uh, contrary to popular misconceptions, this does not lead Nietzsche to an espousal of either atheism or secularism. For Nietzsche, both of those concepts are wrapped up in the ontological crisis of the death of God. They don't have adequate force to respond to this crisis. He's calling us to something, um, a higher project that does have that kind of force to respond to this crisis. In The Birth of Tragedy, he describes this as eine neue Daseinsform, a new form of existence. Throughout his corpus, this existence is increasingly described as a divine existence. Um, and especially in the late works, he names both this form of existence and the practices meant to engender it with the name Dionysus. So with that in mind, it's crucial that we understand Nietzsche's philosophy as a practice of transfiguration. So I have two images here. Uh, on the right is Raphael's transfiguration, which Nietzsche discusses in Birth of Tragedy. Um, I, I like to present this image because I think it, it captures the scope of Nietzsche's ambition. Uh, I, I insist that what Nietzsche is envisioning is indeed a sort of robust deification of human life, something like what Raphael is portraying here. Um, but given Nietzsche's uh, somewhat um, invidious critiques of Christianity and Platonism, this image won't fly. Uh, Nietzschean transfiguration will unfold in the lower half of Raphael's portrait, in the ludic, uh, or through a transposition of the upper and lower. So on the left, this is John Collier's Menads um, from 1886, which happens to be the year that Nietzsche announced himself as a disciple to Dionysus. Um, I think this image sort of nicely captures that transposition. Um, transfiguration for Nietzsche will unfold in the realm of the sensuous, the embodied, and uh, the animal, um, the instinctual parts of humanity. And this picture, I think, I like, you know, both images have this sort of transfiguration that's going on. But in the one on the left, the ludic elements are thoroughly um, incorporated into that experience. So um, this is sort of ecstatic. It evokes laughter and madness and these other ludic categories. So Russ, maybe this is a place that we can talk about these uh, ineffable ecstatic experiences. So for Nietzsche, like for the, the Greeks, Dionysus is the god of both laughter and madness. Um, I am uh, convinced, and some others are also, that 
Nietzsche wants to model his philosophy on the City Dionysia Festival, um, that he is recapitulating a festival to the god Dionysus with his texts. Um, as such, he writes tragedy, satyr play, and comedy. These are all parts of uh, the total festival. Um, the, the full festival is supposed to be an occasion for the god to appear, or for the god's presence to somehow um, come to, to the city. I think Nietzsche's philosophy is trying to reproduce that effect. Um, as I say, this year, though, I'm focused on the ludic elements. The satyr play and the comedy especially are what I want to understand. I want to understand how those genres, how those moods um, work within the broader festival of Nietzsche's philosophy. Uh, Nietzsche is very clear that laughter is, for him, an important site of the divine and the superhuman. Um, but also, there's this, uh, this sort of darker side, intoxication, ecstasy, madness, is also an important part of this Dionysian festival. Um, and Nietzsche's own madness is perhaps a certain kind of uh, warning about that darker side. So that's, that's that for the, the sort of Nietzsche recovery process, as I described it, the first dimension of what I'm working on this year. This is the second dimension, as I mentioned, the present and future of Dionysian philosophy. Um, so my, my hypothesis uh, in broad terms is that religious studies, uh, and especially um, philosophy of religion in the last few decades, has a strong genealogical connection to Nietzsche's Dionysianism, uh, especially through these ludic categories. Um, the concept of play is something of a a sort of fixation and fascination in the 20th century in theory, which has permeated and filtered down to philosophers of religion. Philosophers of religion both claim to study play, many of them, and they also um, claim to be doing it. So there's a, another interesting sort of double valence there. So there's a number of ways that that genealogy could go. I'm especially interested, though, in this, this line, this through line that passes through 20th century French thought. Um, perhaps especially through the work of Georges Bataille, Pierre Klosowski, Gilles Deleuze, and in a different way, I think, uh, Jacques Derrida and Michel Foucault. So these, um, this French generation, or a couple of generations, uh, have had an enormous impact on continental philosophy of religion, especially over the last few decades. They also happen to be some of the most um, attentive readers of Nietzsche with respect to the concepts of play, laughter, and madness. Um, so there's a, there's a sort of reception history here of Nietzsche's Dionysian philosophy, this philosophy of transfiguration. The second part of my hypothesis, though, is that this, this reception has involved a domestication of those concepts, that um, Nietzsche, again, is posing this Dionysian philosophy as a response to an ontological crisis. Uh, he wants us to envision new modes of existence, new ways of being. And it's, it's just hard for me to see um, most philosophers of religion exemplifying that, uh, short of living up to Nietzsche's sort of prose or the level of his, his philosophy. Um, there seems to be a sort of a domestication that's happened. So if the, first, if the first dimension of the research is a Nietzsche recovery project, the second is perhaps a sort of Dionysus recovery project. And the question there is that 
you know, if Nietzsche is calling us to, to a transfiguration of human life, what does it mean to study it as scholars? I'm, I'm interested in this, this sort of disjunction. So I think I have time to share one quotation, which I think uh, sort of maps this well. There's a famous Nietzsche scholar named Larry Hattab who's, who's I think, aware of this, the irony of the situation. And he writes, our own peculiar tragic dilemma lies in the fact that when we translate Nietzsche into our professional philosophical agenda, we do what must be done, but in so doing, we bring to ruin something special and vital, something equally necessary, equally true. It seems we must murder to dissect. Among philosophical commentators, our unique problem is that none of our writing is even remotely like the subject of our writing. But I wish that just once we could turn an APA convention over to Monty Python. <laughs> Punchline, he says, how would we know the difference? So, so I think Hattab is pointing to the, the thing that I'm most curious about, the sense that in taking up subjects like Nietzsche, who are calling us to these um, radical transfigurations, but also to a certain kind of laughter or play, um, why it is that we have such institutional difficulty sort of pulling that off or uh, getting the laugh or, or whatever that is. So thank you. That's, that's all I've got. Well, we have about 15 minutes, and I thought we could open it up to questions and comments. Um, and I just want to, uh, I don't have so much a question as uh, just want to, name some connections that I'm already seeing. Uh, I think Nick already did some of this, but it seems like the inadequacy of the category of the secular seems to be at play in all uh, four of the presentations, not maybe so much Adams, because um, uh, it's clearly not adequate to the text that, that Adam and I are going to be diving into. Um, so that's a, a fruitful point of uh, uh, conversation. For the uh, for the four or five of you, um, and also um, <laughs> play uh, seems to be at work, um, and and that play can be fun, but also involve something quite dark and sinister. Um, that seems certainly to be the case with Tara and Nick and maybe others as well, but. Um, others who have thoughts, uh, either uh, among the five who've presented or uh, those of you who have kindly joined us. Questions, comments? Yeah, probably. I have one for Adam. Well, I have several for Adam, but I'm going to ask one. Uh, what would be the, the scope or the use of uh, this project? So, for example, if uh, I have a serial text that I need to quote for a paper, mm -hmm. what will probably happen is that I don't find it on the internet, for example, Evagnos' great letter. Or if I find it, I'm not going to be able to quote it from the internet because it doesn't have the references that are necessary. Uh -huh. So I, could, I can go to Joel Calvesmaki's uh, page and mm -hmm. copy the Syriac text, but then right. I don't have like the references necessary right. uh, for, for, for publication. Is, is that like something that lies in the scope of your project so that scholars can draw on what you are doing? Definitely. Okay. Yeah, definitely. So paragraphs, you know, however we define that, mm -hmm. but shorter rather than longer are all going to definitely be numbered. And so far, none of these texts are really, really long, but mm -hmm. obviously if they, and 
if they're very long, they can be subdivided. And of course, sometimes authors like Barbreas, for example, is very happy to yes. do that. Uh, you know, to a to a great deal. Yeah. But yeah, so presumably someone can say, you know, you know, Evagrius letter, great letter, section twenty-two, and it's clearly marked in the Syriac. What that means, clearly marked in the English translation, uh, you know, as well. I should say philology is another point of connection between Fabian and Adam, and if we take Nietzsche seriously, that's mm -hmm. the identity he right, most right. consistently claimed was <laughs> to be a philologist. Mm -hmm. Probably had something a little bit um, different in mind. <laughs> Other comments? Good question for Tara. Mm -hmm. What's the age range of these people who play mm. these games, and how, how do the games play out? Mm. I mean, if you're working with miniatures, mm -hmm. then now, and you're working on something that I'm working on. How do we have that play? Is it interactive in that respect? Or? Yeah, so um, they would, would battle, so they would go to a store and they put my army against your army and they'd fight and there's a very complex point system and uh, damage and things like that. But you could also um, go into painting tournaments and I guess you could, I mean that's a sort of form of play and that you know, you're know critiquing and showing off your models and in a way and then you can play video games, so there's mo several Warhammer video games of play, so, and online as well, so you so can interact. Um, I'd actually, so, I think that the average age is around, is young, like under 15, uh, like, you know, younger boys is the, is the range, but there's a lot of people that are older that are the, probably the more vocal in the community that think that they're the demographic and they get very upset when um, Games Workshop does minor changes because they're like, what do you mean? And they're like, well, they're trying to sell and it's kids that sell the most. So I, I'm not sure if that's the average, but I know that that's their most selling demographic because it is obviously trying to make the most money so yeah it's just an interesting thing where they think it's all about them and they're like we need this and they're like we that wouldn't be profitable for us we're not doing that unique brush you know they need to get people in that are amateurs right not the pros so <laughs> how many of you have heard of warhammer 40k before this just a handful of you okay now you will see it everywhere <laughs> <laughs> because there are warhammer 40k stores uh, in every major city. I was in Milan several years ago and just walked by a 40k store. They're everywhere. So it may seem completely fringe and weird, and it is, but it's also pervasive, global. Now, after Shira's question, um, I wonder if there is any gender bias in this play because everything you showed us was very yeah. masculine and you yes. now mentioned and that boys are usually yeah. playing it this and again the pictures that you mm. showed were very like they, they imagine a patriarch god yes so <laughs> have you have you thought about the implications of yes this? Definitely, it's a really good question, and there's one paper written about, uh, I think maybe one paper that talks about the lack of uh, the kind of like large breasts on some of the like uh, female figurines, uh, and I think that there's definitely criticism that it's not a very inclusive space for women, um, and I think that's shown by the fact there's not as many women at all that play, but it is changing, so they have one of the main media, that the media people on Instagram for instance are women, and so they're sharing, and I think that 
the there's a sisters of battle which are these like like battle nuns which I think are really cool and but they still have like anatomically look female but if you you know people know the about armor that generally that should just be like pretty flat so that the arrow didn't hit you straight in the chest if you're woman. So the fact they have breasts isn't like you know very good in war. You wouldn't want it to be like in that sense. Um, anyway, I don't I don't know. But the point being is that I think that there's a huge uh, urge for them to shift towards being more inclusive spaces, and I am noticing that happening. But it's slow, and it is still very predominantly boys and men. And I think that. The fact that they are playing war games with masculine-looking toys adds a bit of um, uh, safety for them to go and basically <coughs> still play with what essentially are um, toys, models, you know, dolls, <laughs> in some senses. You know what I mean? So I think it's good in the way that I think it allows space for men, but I think it mm -hmm. needs to go a long way to allow more spaces for women. And that would be something maybe down the track I'd, I'd look into, but I'm not at the moment. And yeah. is there um, the, the the main key problem in the game is war or <coughs> essentially it's all about uh, war and different variations of factions that are warring and you paddle and you war so it's very like um that's a, a large part but there's a lot of folklore and uh, religious mythologies and um, languages like there's people that translate languages that have be basically been drip fed in um, small articles, they'll just put a tiny bit of characters and they write that down. And they, my partner's one of these people, so he spends a long time trying to translate the language. And so there's a lot of other elements than just the, the war aspect, but it is a, still a major component. I mean, it's in the name. <laughs> yeah. I have a question. Uh, this is mainly for Nick, but also Tara, if you want to jump in on this. Charlie, you mentioned the inadequacy of the term secular, um, but I kept, as I was listening to other speak, I thought about the inadequacy of, of our conception of the human in a lot of our um, uh, projects. Um, and I'm thinking specifically of this notion of madness. Um, and madness, as I'd sort of generally think of it as, as like, like the losing of one's mind. Um, but, you know, the mind being the sort of distinctive thing that separates us from, uh, you know, non-humans. Um, I'm thinking about, you know, in, in environmentalism, you know, the, the experience of transcendence is not only transcending your subjectivity to connect with something larger than yourself, but also sort of the transcending of, of, your, of your human consciousness to become one with, unified with, with the non-human world. Um, so I'm wondering, in this concept of madness, losing the, 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 the mind, um, does that mean for someone like Nietzsche, and I, and I imagine this is something you might be exploring, so maybe may not have a, a clear answer on this yet, but does that mean inhabiting a new form of humanity, or somehow losing it to gain something else, or or maybe creating something new entirely? This is a question I'm ask, asking myself. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great question. I, I would also, I, I'm in a try to give an answer and then maybe like you know take the the ball and pass it to Fabian because it, it helps me formulate a question to him also um, but I think I mean with respect to Nietzsche I think there's um, there's a sort of uh, lack of clarity about what exactly the transformation is into um, he's much much uh, more comfortable in sort of negative space but it's but I think that um, that you're right there's a 
there's a sense that um, what's being overcome is not only subjectivity, but um, sort of rational consciousness, discursive thought altogether. And for Nietzsche, that's very closely related to, to the broader um, reality of nature, which he has some very Heraclitian terms, you know, it's becoming, it's chaos. Mm. There's some, for Nietzsche to be connected to Dionysus means to be, um, to be uh, unified with a, with, unified with a sort of space in which there's no identity or repetition at all. Mm. There's a sort of complete lack of, of, um, of determination. So that's one negative mode. But then again, he also, uh, you know, there's this language of Ubermensch or um, the philosophers of the future. Um, there's clearly some, some place that this is going that isn't just a reversion to inanimate existence. So, um, so I'm, I'm really interested in that sort of um, what is naturalizing humanity, which is Nietzsche's language, what could that mean other than in a shul of consciousness? Uh, is, there, is there consciousness for the Ubermensch, is, is a way to, to phrase your question in Nietzschean terms. Is the Ubermensch thinking the way that we do? Um, or is, you know, Dionysian philosopher thinking in that way? Or, you know, maybe play is a way of, of responding. Um, but is it all right if I, if I pass a question to Fabian? Um, this, maybe the connection between that question and this question will be clear enough. Um, but I heard you say sort of two, what I took to be two related things, or state two related problems that, you, that you're identifying and trying to speak to in your, in your work. And one was a sort of, um, the, the problem or the challenge with translating uh, the philosophy of Vasubandhu, for example, into sort of modern philosophical terms. Mm -hmm. You use the names like Kant and Merleau-Ponty, mm -hmm. and that there's a sort of um, a problem with that process, mm -hmm. that sort of comparison. But the the, the sort of uh, the more acute problems seem to be um, taking these these sort of the demands of these traditional philosophies or practices, the rigorous demands, and reducing them to a sort of late capitalist notion of therapy. Mm -hmm. um, so those two things seem, I, I'm just curious if, the, how, if you see those things as related, um, as this sort of, uh, like, what's the relationship between uh, sort of modern idealist philosophy or phenomenology and um, the sort of, uh, you know, materialistic sort of therapy complex. Does that make sense as a question? Yes, I see, but I think it's a question that allows various different answers. Uh, and one possible answers answer would be to say that uh, philosophy in the West has grown out of its uh, therapeutical, or whatever mm. shell you want to call it. So it is not really concerned with what the philosopher who does philosophy actually does outside of philosophy. So. Uh, it's not concerned with the philosopher as a human being mm. and how the human being can and should improve him or herself. And um, this project has as a uh, lateral aim, as a co-aim, to also bring back philosophy to this sense of uh, implying the person in the philosophy that uh, uh, she's doing. and. Um, in that sense, yes, I see a relation, but I'm not going to build the, the project around the, 
that relation because it's more aimed toward uh, the criticism of the uh, current state of religious studies. Mm. So the criticism is more on that uh, line, but I think that it implies many other effects uh, among which the one that you just described is, is definitely one. Uh, Tara and then Santos. I have a question for you, Nick. About oh, hold on, Tara. Oh, it's not on. Is yours on this thread? Yeah. Oh, okay, then why don't we do to you? Yeah, I was thinking about does it relate that with because uh, phenomenologist thinks consciousness quite differently than what was about things about Alay Manas and the store of consciousness. Do you see any relation? Uh, yes, uh, actually. Much of the Vasubandhu scholarship in the late 20th century was built on that analogy between phenomenology and Alaya Vijnana, our consciousness. Yeah. But um, the problem that I have with that is that I think that Vasubandhu also has a metaphysical side. Mm -hmm. So he talks about uh, reality in terms of reality, and that is a kind of perspective that phenomenology does not really allow. Same. And I have a problem with the fact that when you transform in Vasubandhu into a phenomenologist, you kind of remove a very big part of his potential for philosophy, uh, and you remove a possible approach of Vasubandhu as a metaphysician. And I think that uh, that makes, uh, makes it difficult to appreciate his real value. And that's why I criticize the kind of uh, phenomenological approach, and I also think that the guy who started with this, or made it popular, Dan Lasthouse, um, is 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 not a very good scholar, and I think that, <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that uh, his his book on Vasubandhu um, created a trend in uh, Yogacara studies on which on which many young people jump, but they just jump to the conclusions immediately. Yes, Vasubandhu is a phenomenologist and he opposes anti-metaphysics and that's the future of philosophy but I think that the real work lies actually in the act of jumping and yeah Dan Lusthaus did a, uh, a quite a bad job at what he, what he did I think yeah thank you so maybe this will be our last question and answer because mm -hmm. we're at our at time so okay. I've got a question for you Nick about uh, sort of the Dionysus and whether I guess I was I might be my ignorance of, of Dionysus, but I was wondering whether you thought we do live in quite a Dionysian world of sort of you know, worldly pursuits, <coughs> pleasure, pursuing pleasure um, over maybe other things, and I guess that kind of um, not really caring. And I guess also particularly and maybe in the climate change crisis, whether that attitude would be helpful in getting people interested in in sort of climate change, because it, um, to me it's kind of like a just work on yourself, don't worry too much about. I mean, but that could be my ignorance. On. That's, I mean, it's a really interesting question about whether we live in a Dionysian world. Um, the answer for Nietzsche would be definitely not. Um, that that what, what he's envisioning is, is, is something quite different. Uh, and, and potentially something um, much more frightening. Uh, that's, it's one of the... The, it's one of the reasons I, I sort of insert words of caution whenever I'm talking about this Nietzschean ideal, because I don't want to, to make it seem like, um, you know, I'm sort of taking on his description of what what we should be going toward as my own, um, because I mean one of the one of the um, 
the really important features of Dionysian attitude or worldview is um, the abandonment of self-preservation as a value. So with the with the idea of, uh, of climate change that you know um, you know the world will be reborn. So it, it doesn't really matter that it's mm -hmm. you know there, there, that leads to those sorts of places potentially. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I'm I'm not sure. I'll I'll have to think a lot more about. Uh, where the rubber meets the road on those sorts of questions. I think, uh, you know, the, 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 the easy answer that I can give, and it's sort of an evasion, is that um, I think my interest in the, in the Dionysian is, is sort of um, more similar to this, the, the, this critique of modern philosophy, that philosophy should be a much more robust and challenging enterprise that involves uh, much more than um, sort of giving rational accounts and argumentation. Mm -hmm. It's a sort of uh, transformation of, of the human being sort of fully. Yeah. But I mean, that, that question about sort of politics and, and, and future, it's, it's a really important one. Well, I want to thank you five for really, these, these were brilliant, very clear. I know I only give you 10 minutes each. They were clear, compelling, so thank you all. And thank you all for coming and asking such good questions. So um, uh, I hope that uh, if you, yeah, I hope you seek these five out. And I know these five will seek each other out. They have to. They <laughs> do the program. But uh, thank you all once again for coming. Sponsor, Center for the Study of World Religions. Copyright 2023. President and Fellows of Harvard College.